Hello, welcome to Psychopath in Your Life. This is episode number 139, and I'm your host, Diane Emerson. Today, I'm going to be carrying on from the past episodes about the different issues with childs and marriages and all these different kinds of things going on in the world. And I'm beginning to come to the conclusion that most of this is set up on purpose, because why else wouldn't there be laws regulating some of this stuff? I I can't think of a single reason, but maybe you can. So whatever you can do to like, share, comment, whatever in the um, description boxes down below for any links you might want to take a look at is very much appreciated because, you know, I'm not really aware that there's ever been a case where a single child has ever been helped by our silence. So let's get moving here today. I'm going to be covering the couple different kinds of marriages children marriages and also the temporary marriages. And then um, next week I'll be talking about who's in charge of the UN. And I'd like to take a go at, because in all these cases, we always need to look at why is this going on? How is it going on? And who's doing it for God's sakes? Because it's, it, it, it has to be on purpose. And maybe I've just become jaded over the last 20 some years, or maybe not. I don't know. But I'll look forward to talking to you in the comments because it appears to me that there's a reason why all of this stuff is unregulated. And the reason is is because it's how a psychopathic um, society runs and treats its children and the most vulnerable. So anyhow, so what I'd like to cover are, uh, today I'm going to be covering the marriages and um, I'd like to cover the some oddball things to begin with in this unregulated industry. What happens is, is that we have white countries, we have dark countries. So what happens in this child thing that I've been figuring out is that totally unregulated. So if you want to have a child, you can go to, um, if you can't get it done in your country, or if there's some reason why not, you can always go to another country and have it done. And what'll happen is, is that, um, is that you will pay less money. Um, I guess it's about saving money because I couldn't quite get a handle on how much it costs here versus how much it costs there. But there's a lot of issues involved in these things. And like I said, there's got to be some reason why it's not regulated. Um, And because um, what they do is, let's say you want to have a surrogate, have your baby in India. There's probably several hundred IVF clinics now opening up there. And what you do is if you need the eggs, you get the eggs from the Ukraine and they ship them to India. Or if you need artificial and so anyway, so all these services are all done and it all feeds into a lot of times the orphanage system. And why would you think of the orphanage system? Well, I guess instead of going to the orphanage to adopt children, you can just as easily go there to have IVF and have your own children or or find a surrogate. Well, there's a lot of downsides to that, and I'm not going to go into all of them today, but I would certainly think that um, money wouldn't be your only goal when you're talking about having a child. So it seems like an interesting um, thing that people are doing to save money. So... I'm not sure, is it to save money or is it to avoid regulations? So let me give you one couple. Um, They were a couple out of Australia. And what they did was they went to India and they had a surrogate. And the surrogate had two babies. Why? I don't know, but it's not overly regulated. So the surrogate had two babies, but the couple only wanted one baby. They wanted the girl, which is kind of unusual because usually the girls get the shift. So, um, So anyway, so they wanted the girl, not the boy. So what they do? Well, they just took the girl and left the boy in India. Now, they had already adopted this baby. Technically, it was already their baby, but they just left it there. So, yeah, so 
all this lack of regulation is certainly not going to do well for the babies. Um, so what they're finding, too, is that babies are being taken off the streets and fed into the orphanage system. The orphanages will buy the babies or the young children. And then those become presented as orphans and get shipped off to, to new homes. So there's a lot of stuff with children that we've really got to kind of get a handle on. Today I'd like to um, – so and also this this – this couple in Australia, there's different laws in different states as far as bringing these babies home. So I'm not even sure that baby was really even legal to leave behind because technically it was their baby because they'd arranged it through the embassy and all those kinds of steps. So yeah, people just flying around having kids. I mean, we're, we're really entering into a phase here that it's becoming so reckless. It's like people who give their children puppies for Christmas, normally never a good plan. So to give people open access to real life human babies by going to other countries, it's, it's very, to me, it seems very problematic. Now, I don't know if it's that just me or what. So what happens in these countries is that they also have a system set up for the children that live in the brothels. Um, so everywhere you look, the end result of these marriages, the rapes, all this stuff, the direct effect is always on the children and it's always on the women. So it's um, what happens in these brothels is that the people live in the brothels, okay? The women live in the brothels. Well, these brothels are huge villages. One brothel in India, I think, had like 20,000 people living there. So it's not like when you start to explore all this stuff. It's not like when the UN is saying, oh, I can't do anything about it, don't know anything about it. Well, it's not a mystery where these brothels are that all these children, these women are living in. Not a mystery at all. Um, they are big, huge establishments. Um, and so what happens in the brothels? Well, the children get um, re-hurt um, um, even further because you you're a child, your mother's in the brothel, your grandmother may be in the brothel, you live in one room in the brothel. So where do the children go when they're doing the activities of the brothel? Well, they don't leave the brothel. So what happens is, is that they live and eat inside of that brothel, and then eventually they take up the family business and become a prostitute themselves. See, that's how the whole thing gets going. So I don't understand how all these developed countries can run around and say that, well, India has this problem, Ukraine has this problem. All these people have these problems, but yet they're living in buildings. They're not living, you know, strewn out on the streets and stuff. As a matter of fact, in um, uh, what they do in India is that they actually have developments along highways and stuff. And what do the developments along the highways do? Well, they – hold on a second here. Get out of here, you two. I don't know why they have the whole house to fight in. Um, so anyway, so yeah, so what they do is there's all these um, places that grow up around highways and stuff because highways transport the children. So yeah, they, they want to get to places where they can get those children sold and married and out there as quickly as they can. So when we look at this age of 18, let's not be fooled by that because that doesn't mean that everybody's treating these children well. What they've done is, and I'll lay it out in these temporary marriages, they have found a way to um, trick people into prostitution is really what it is. So um, we don't really have any statistics. Um, statistics are not to be found. Um, so I'm not going to be doing many statistics. I do have some statistics 
from here in this country, because we do have a way of keeping track of the child marriage is probably a little bit better. So anyway, so here we, we're in this unregulated territory and the IVF stuff has been going on in India for over 20 years now. So it's not like any of this stuff is like brand new. Um, it's been going on for a very, very long time. And it's created quite a, you know, we, we've turned children into commodities. I mean, I could as easily buy a child as I could go to the store and buy a bag of apples. Seems kind of scary, doesn't it? I think the only reason they're not having babies in bottles and labs is because they haven't gotten there yet. We're, we're sort of starting to normalize to that process. So if you watch my shows on the Epstein case and the symbols all around his New Mexico ranch, all around the Petto Island, we're moving toward eugenics here. Maybe. I think we are. But it's going to take a lot more research to validate what I think we might be heading into here. But it feels to me like we're moving into further into eugenics. We've been heading that way for a really long time here, but it feels to me like we're really moving in a much quicker way when you start to look at this IVF and all this stuff that's going on. So, because um, after all, I think what happened, and I'll look forward to your comments too. I think this is just my own conclusion. I think what happened is, is that after World War II, the horror of it all. Now, I'm not totally convinced about why it all happened, but I'm not a reckless person. I'm not going to sit here and say the Holocaust didn't exist. Um, but after World War II was when the UN was founded. So they have a history of 75 years now. And next week, I'll be talking about who's in charge of the um, UN. But anyway, so after World War II, that I think that when the UN was formed, a lot of us thought, taken care of. We can go back to our lives. Nothing that awful will ever happen again because we have the UN in charge. Well, I think it's kind of turned out to be the opposite. I think the UN was a very clever ploy because it, it put us back to sleep again, put us back to not paying that close attention to what our government activities are. And one thing that's kind of interesting about the UN is that um, a friend told me this, is that, you know, the UN logo with those leaves and stuff, it's almost the same logo as the Romans used. <laughs> so take it, take it, whatever you want. So let's talk a little bit about child marriages today. And then I'm also going to talk about the temporary marriages. So child marriages, it's long been a uh, portrayed as an issue in developing world, especially in India, in various nations in Africa and the Middle East. Americans are often sur surprised by the persistence right here in this country. Many assume that it was a practice brought to the United States, just like we thought that eugenics was something that the Germans came up with. No, they got that from here. Okay. So what happens, it was, we used to think it was brought here by immigration populations or one used in isolation in religious sex. Neither belief is borne out by the numbers. Even at the highest height of immigration to the United States in the 1910s and 1920s, U.S.-born white children of U.S.-born parents were more likely to be married as minors than were immigrant girls of the first or second generations. U.S.-born black girls were about one and a half times more likely to be married than were white girls. In both cases, Poor girls in rural states accounted for the numbers. It all goes back to poverty, doesn't it? Because you can marry the kids off, save that family honor, get the kid out the door. Opposition to child marriage in the United States 
also has a long history, dating back to the middle of the 19th century. See, we talk about a lot of stuff, but I don't get the idea we do a lot about it. So anyway, so while the legal minimum, this is where we get to be very interesting, is the minimum marriage age, okay? It has gone up in almost all states since the 19th century. Almost all states have exceptions built in that allow parents, this is for the minimum age, okay, that allow parents and or judges to consent to the marriage of minors below, got somebody around my chair here, below the stated minimums in the same cases if they are pregnant. So what happens is, is that these, we have these minimums, but we don't really stick to them. Okay. So in also it, it varies if they're emancipated minors. Emancipated minors in some states can be emancipated as young as 16 or something like that. But anyway, so this means that with judicial or parental consent, I got a cat behind my chair here. <laughs> um, they've gone for almost two years without bugging me in here, so they're doing pretty well. So this means without judicial or parental consent, children as young as 10, 11, and 12 have been married in the United States in the last couple of years, in the last couple of decades, excuse me, <laughs> weeks. When exceptions are taken into consideration, 25 states actually, that's half of the country here, do not have absolute minimum ages. Pretty problematic, isn't it? So half of the states in this country don't have minimum ages. Humanitarian and natural disasters are leading to dramatic increases in child marriage around the world. Mounting evidence reveals that in times of crisis, whether triggered by refugee emergencies, floods, earthquakes, or war, the number of young girls being married rises as families struggle to cope. So what happens is, is there's a lot of discriminatory things that go on that link a girl's perceived sexual purity to her family's honor. If a girl becomes pregnant, spends the night outside the family, this is in other countries, is seen with a boyfriend or returns home late after seeing a boyfriend, her family may force her to marry for the sake of honor. In some cases, girls who become pregnant or are sexually active decide to enter a customary marriage before because they fear being rejected, beaten, or abused by relatives. What happens is the girl becomes the... Um, commodity that gets sold. And so if she decides that she doesn't want to do it, what they'll do is last week I was talking about the trading for the goats and the, the cows and stuff, is that what she will do is if she doesn't want to do it, let's say down the road, she decides she wants a divorce because the husband is a horrible person. What'll happen is that they'll force her to try to get back the cows and the goats before she can get the divorce. So what they do in those countries, I don't know if I mentioned this last week, is what they do when they get the dowry, meaning the cows and stuff, is they disperse them to other family relatives. So if the guy comes looking for his cows, they're gone. So, yeah, so what happens is the cow is gone, the girl stays in the marriage. So um, what is really, um, so what happens is, is that, like I was saying last week, the girl usually goes to live with the um, husband's family. It really essentially becomes another set of hands around the house. So, but what, what really becomes... Um, even more disturbing, if it's not already enough, is that in most cases of child marriages, girls have no sex education before they become pregnant or married. And there was a 2010 survey of young people, and those girls between 10 and 14, they lacked any basic knowledge of reproductive health. So, and so anyway, so then they have a really big financial incentive. So, 
it, it provides impoverished families with the opportunity to relieve these burdens and even generate income through dowries and other payments in exchange for the young bride. The dowry system that exists in many Middle Eastern and North African countries cultures further motivates families of young girls to marry off their daughters at an early age as young girls are seen as more valuable and bring a higher bride price than post-prebrecessant girls. Temporary marriage, let's talk about that a little bit, okay? That's a really uh, thing that's really growing rapidly, okay? It's a euphemism for religiously sanctioned prostitution. That's just my view of this, okay? And then that's only based on what other people said. I'm not trying to go after any particular culture or country. I just think that when we start to assimilate into other cultures, we probably should be have to go by the laws of that culture, okay? But what happens is there's a lot of this going on over in the UK. And so um, it's an Islamic custom that unites a man and an unmarried woman. It's always the woman, an unmarried woman as husband and wife for a limited period of time, sometimes for less than half an hour. It's called, I have to watch, I'm not very good at Arabic. It's called nikah a muta, M-U-T-A-H. And it means short-term marriage in Arabic. The union consists of a verbal or written contract in which both parties agree to the length of time and condition of the marriage. And this is all drawn up by a cleric, a religious man. So what happens is, is that the men go to the cleric, and then the cleric arranges for the temporary marriages. Well, what happens is, is that, um, so the unions can last for a few minutes or a few years, and then the contract ends, so does the marriage. So when the contract is over, it's kind of like you got a divorce. Um, so nothing needs to be done. You're, you're done as far as that contract. So if there's any offspring, if any, they're often the exclusive responsibility of the woman. So they're also known as pleasure marriages. Mutha was established within Islam by the Muslim prophet Muhammad himself as a way to relieve reward, excuse me, <laughs> I guess relieve in there too, reward his jihadists for services rendered to Allah. Although Mutha is sanctioned by the Quranic verse 4-24, the practice was later outlined by the second Muslim caliph, Omar, and that is like I-634-644, whatever that means, who said he viewed temporary marriage as legalized adultery and fornication. So it was a practice and it became not a practice, but it's still actually a practice. So because of the temporary, the informal issue of temporary marriages, there are no official statistics to show how many of these unions are in Britain because they're starting to take place a lot in the UK. But Islamic scholars interviewed by the BBC say that practice is widespread and anecdotal evidence suggests it is especially popular among the younger generation of Muslims in England and Wales. That kind of surprised me, actually. I would have thought it would have been the older people that would have been clinging on to this old tradition, but it doesn't seem to be the case. In Luton, L I want to botch your British names, L-U-T-O-N, Luton, a heavily Islamicized city situated 50 kilometers, 30 miles north of London, temporary marriage has become so commonplace that it has been referred to as wife swapping. 
Some defenders of Islamic Sharia law, apparently eager to avoid another Muslim-related scandal in Britain, I don't know if that was that Tommy Robinson thing or whatever, have sought to downplay the scope of practice by claiming that temporary marriage is limited to only the Shia sect of Islam. Well, okay, they're saying it's just one sect. I, I, I say that we probably shouldn't have any of this stuff going on, but... Just my view. Although Nikah al-Mutah is indeed practiced by Shia Muslims, Sunni Muslims engage in an even more libertine practice called Nikah al-Misah, M-I-S-V-A-R. Also, Zaw was called Zaw. I'll stick with Zaw for now. Um, it means traveler's marriage. So you can get married and go on the road. The Misah is not a normal marriage in the sense that the husband and wife in this type of union normally live separately and meet only to fulfill their conjugal obligations. The man is usually already married and cannot afford another regular wife. In a misyar, the man enters into what is essentially a temporary marriage in which the woman has limited rights. See, the men always get all the rights. The women and children have no rights. Misar marriages are often entered into by Sunni Muslims, okay, when they're in another country. That means when they're, that's why they're called the travelers thing, okay. It also is used by Muslim men who are on vacation and want to avoid incurring Islamic penalties for extramarital sex. The reason for the temporary laws is because of the religious penalties, because you can't just go around and sleep with people or you'll get caught and get in trouble. So if you have this paperwork, that a cleric can even do it over the phone. So it's not like you don't have to show up and really do much. But the man makes all the arrangements and then invites the woman. And where it gets tricky is that the woman, sometimes due to ignorance, will not know that it's a temporary marriage. So what will happen is that they'll go off and get married, thinking they're getting married. And then at the end of the marriage, a few days, a few weeks, months, after having had you know, pretty much nonstop rape with this guy, maybe getting pregnant, they, the man will just leave. And then the, per, the woman will be distraught, go to the cleric, ask what happened. He'll say, well, my dear, it was just a temporary marriage. So what will happen is now the woman is set up for a life of prostitution. Why? Well, because she's no longer a virgin and she's uh, dirty. So the families reject them. She has nowhere to live. So prostitution becomes her way of a means to an income and the cleric becomes essentially kind of like her pimp because she then relies on him to find these new men to do more temporary marriages because remember she has to survive so god forbid when a children come out of this thing so so anyway so there are some critics and um men of this um Sunni and Shia taking on multiple wives for a number of hours. They allow a Muslim man to have insurmountable sexual partners, often underage girls, who are used as an Islamic cover for prostitution and the exploitation of women. But all, all this stuff boils back to the exploitation of children and women. There is no difference between mutah marriage and prostitution. There is a time limit. And so, and then also the mar, M-A-H-R, which is called the payment, it's given as a mandatory gift. See, there's money being changed hands. That's where we get into the prostitution level. So it's it's really the same as a, a prostitute is what it is. I mean, there's money changing hands. There's this temporary marriage. There's the guy splits. The wife is left stigmatized. And that, that's the bad part about this. Um, so... What happens is they can't return home usually as a divorcee because when the contract is up, you become a divorcee. But in some cases, their parents don't let them back in because they're dirty 
And so they're, they're unclean and they're no longer virgins and they have very little value. Everything is tied around virgins, values, and women and girls are commodities. Schools shun them. Everybody shuns them. So they have no education. They have no skills. It's tough for them to survive on their own. So that's how they fall into this prostitution trap. Well, arranged marriages or however you want to call it. So what happens to them? Well, they end up in brothels. They end up in brothels in different parts of the country. And that's the part that's amazing about these brothels is that one of them had like 20,000 people living there. These aren't like temporary places. So, you know, if the UN is really in there to try to clean up all this um, horrible things happening to women and children... Why don't we get rid of these brothels? Why doesn't somebody deal with this problem there? Because these people live in these brothels. So, and a lot of these girls in these temporary marriages, they have to do them multiple times. So, anyway, so there's also these, um, they're, they're just a front for child prostitution, a lot of them are, um, because it makes it sound like it's just a temporary thing. And what happens is they lure them away from home, and then they have nowhere to go. Then eventually they end up in a brothel or on the street. So next week I'll be talking about the um, people that are in charge of the UN and how do we get to this place. And let me know what you think about eugenics. If you think this is the road we're kind of heading down here, it seems to me that that's the road we're leading down. We have an unregulated industry of people being able to have babies, take babies away, travel around babies. Don't you think we should have some sort of regulation for all of this um, just to protect the babies um, from harm? Because what's to stop people from going to India and getting babies to be used in you know, we've got things going on in different countries where they have cyber clinics for um, rape going on, where they have buildings set up and cameras and stuff. So they're taking children, they're raping them for online activities. So I think that there's a reason why we don't have any regulations. Now, I'm not a person that wants to be regulated about everything. But I think for when somebody's basic human rights are at hand, like a child, I think they should have some rights. I think we should have some regulations. I think we should have some laws monitoring this stuff. So anyway, I'm going to check out for here. It's been kind of a rough week. So I'll chat with you next week and let's talk about these creeps at the UN and where we're going to go from here. So be safe out there and chat with you next week. Goodbye for now.